Hi, this is Toxic. I'm Jason Fagoni. Welcome back. Cynthia is on assignment this week, so today we have a special guest, Daniel Hirsch. Dan is an expert in environmental cleanups, and particularly cleanups that involve hazardous radioactive substances. And this is why we have talked to him for a number of our stories we've done at the San Francisco Chronicle about the former Hunters Point Naval Shipyard Superfund Waste Site. Dan is the former chair of environmental and nuclear policy at UC Santa Cruz. He's also the president of the Committee to Bridge the Gap, a nonprofit that gives technical assistance to communities dealing with complicated environmental cleanups. And we will hear from Dan in a minute right after this break. So we're here with Daniel Hirsch today. Dan is an expert in environmental cleanups. Uh, he's been a source for us all year on this Hunter's Point story. And one of the things that makes Dan interesting, I think, is that he's kind of an outsider. He's based in Santa Cruz. He's one of the few independent observers who really knows about the cleanup, has been following it closely, and has a different perspective from the authorities in San Francisco. And I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Dan says some interesting things. For instance, one thing he told us is that the shipyard could have been cleaned up by now, and it could have been cleaned up right uh, with the same amount of money that has been spent if only people had been doing their jobs right. Dan spoke to us from his home and office in Santa Cruz, and I started by asking him what drew him to this area in the first place. How did he first start to become a kind of watchdog focusing on the cleanup of radioactive waste sites. I've worked on issues related to nuclear contamination for um, many decades. Um, I was actually drawn into it by accident after the Three Mile Island accident uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, what year was that? 1979. Okay. A number of my students at UCLA were interested in researching nuclear activity in LA, and I said, sure confident they would find nothing. But within a few weeks, they had uncovered a partial meltdown of a nuclear reactor that the Atomic Energy Commission had kept secret for 20 years. They found an ocean dump site for radioactive waste just off the coast. They found a couple of launches of uh, nuclear-powered satellites that had fallen back, one in the LA area. They found a radioactive waste dump in Brentwood, not far from UCLA. And then to really embarrass me, they discovered a reactor in the building next to where my classroom was that was leaking radioactive gas into our building. Right. And so the, univer- also- the university naturally was, was very happy about all of this, happy to, happy to hear about all of this stuff. And it was terrific, terrific for your career, right? It was difficult, I have to say. Um, the students issued a report. Um, I tried to stay out of it. Um, eventually... Um, uh, I was involved in testifying in the relicensing proceedings before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission about the relicensing of the reactor. And so for several years while teaching at UCLA, I was also involved in these administrative legal proceedings about the university's reactor. Okay. Uh, eventually, the NRC uh, proceeding resulted in the university shutting the reactor down um, large measure because of the safety and security problems we had identified. Did this suggest to you that sort of problems with um, radioactive cleanups might be more widespread than you had suspected? Yes. I should indicate that my own uh, childhood was um, uh, uh, deeply uh, 
enamored of the idea of the tapping of the atom for peaceful purposes, that the um, uh, intellectual discoveries that Einstein and others had made could be used to better humankind. And so uh, I was one of many people who uh, began to find that there was a bit of a, a dark side to that um, otherwise uh, um, nice sounding cloud. So at that point, did you consider yourself uh, an anti-nuclear activist? No, my role has almost always been to try to provide independent technical assistance. When identifying a problem, try to identify a solution. Right. Um, the decision whether to follow that solution um, is uh, in the hands of those who control those nuclear activities. So in the case of the UCLA reactor, we had proposed ways that they could fix the problem, reduce the amount of radioactive gas being released and convert the reactor to using non-weapons-grade uranium so that that stuff couldn't be stolen for weapons purposes. I'd, I'm not sure I understand how they could have put a reactor right next to your classroom in the first place. Is that like a normal thing? or? Uh... Yeah, well, the Atomic Energy Commission was giving out uh, nuclear reactors to numerous uh, universities around the country in the 50s and 60s. And so um, it's kind of a relic of that era. There uh, are still a number of universities that have reactors on their campuses, but because of work that I've done, um, they've been required to convert from using bomb-grade uranium to um, material that you couldn't use for a weapon if you stole it. The UCLA case, my students had uncovered the fact that five nuclear bombs worth of weapons-grade uranium uh, were being stored in a filing cabinet um, with security no better than that of the campus bookstore. And that we have been cabinet? able to correct nationally to um, a significant degree. Is that just because people didn't realize the danger of that material at the time, or was it because they were screwing up and, and actually knew how dangerous it was, but they just they made a mistake? There, there were very um, competent uh, faculty members from nuclear engineering serving on the reactor security committee and uh, they knew the danger from weapons-grade uranium. Um, the problem was simply that uh, there's incompatibility between having a dangerous device like a reactor and weapons-grade uranium to fuel it and having the open atmosphere of a university campus. Ah, right. And so um, people simply said, we, if we had this material somewhere else, we would really protect it but they were in the midst of a university and that would change the character of the university. It was a poor decision in the end. Okay. How did you first become interested in the uh, cleanup of radioactivity at the former Hunters Point Naval Shipyard, which is the story we've been covering this year? I was director of the program on environmental and nuclear policy at UC Santa Cruz. And we were approached by the Hunters Point Bayview Environmental Justice um, uh, Task Force to provide some independent review of what was being done at Hunter's Point and to present it then to the community. And we thought that this would be a pretty quick activity. Um, this was not a private company that would be cutting corners. It was the U.S. Navy. Right. It's a Superfund site. The U.S. EPA oversees it. EPA's regional headquarters is just a few minute cab ride away from Hunter's Point. So we really didn't think we would find anything at all. How many years ago was this? That was three years ago. Three years ago. Okay. And you and your students began doing what exactly? You began looking at project reports? 
That's right. So um, one of the central issues that one always looks at it for such a cleanup is whether the cleanup standards are in fact appropriate, whether they're protective, whether they're up to date. And uh, I and my students had done a good deal of work before this time with EPA's preliminary remediation goal calculators. Um, preliminary remediation goals, or PRGs, are uh, the starting point for a cleanup standard. And EPA has some fairly fancy web-based calculators whereby you can come up with the concentration of, let's say, strontium-90 or cesium-137 or plutonium-239. That should be the level that you try to clean a site up to. Okay. So what we did at the very outset, and this is what changed the course of our work, was we asked the Navy and the EPA for the cleanup standards at Hunters Point. And we were provided in early 2016 the standards for radioactivity. It took us only a few hours to discover that these standards were grossly inadequate. Um, There were footnotes in the tables, and the tables indicated in their footnotes that the source of the cleanup standards for the buildings was a 1974 Atomic Energy Commission guidance document. Right. The AU hasn't been in existence for decades. Um, this guidance document was not based on safety, but was based on what handheld equipment in the 1960s could readily detect. And the EPA has long said that it should not be used at Superfund sites, but that instead you should be using EPA's building calculators. Okay, so I just want to stop you for a second. So when we're talking about sort of PRGs, cleanup standards, um, what what is the the bigger picture of what we're talking about here? We're essentially talking about the rules that the federal government is setting for how how they can know when the site is safe for people to live on, work on all of that, right? This is about avoiding uh, exposing the public to hazardous radioactive substances, right? It's, it's, they're setting their own rules for when, when we can say the site is okay. That's right. So to be clear, Hunter's Point got badly contaminated by decades of very sloppy activity by the U.S. Navy and very poor oversight regulation by the regulators. And that's resulted in the soil and the groundwater and the structures and the asphalt all being contaminated with radioactive material. The cleanup standards are the levels that EPA sets for how much contamination you have to clean up before you can say it would be acceptable for people to live on it or to have daycare centers on it or to have art studios and so on. And these are generally in units of concentration of radioactivity per gram of soil. Um, The units are actually called picocuries. So these PRGs, preliminary remediation goals, preliminary cleanup goals, are the cleanup goals that you're supposed to be using at a Superfund site as to how much cesium or strontium or plutonium you would be allowed to leave there and still expose people to, as opposed to when you have to do more cleanup to remove it. It seems to me that you have uh, a difficult challenge in trying to explain and convince to people that radiation uh, is dangerous because, first of all, a, l- a lot of us don't really understand much about the sort of scientific uh, uh, effects of radiation. And radiation is also invisible, so it can be harming you without 
you knowing it. So I, I, I just I wanted to ask you about the, the challenge that you face there. Radiation is dangerous um, uh, in ways that are, uh, uh, are hard for the public to grasp because you cannot see it, you can't taste it, you can't smell it. And radioactivity is dangerous in exquisitely in tiny, tiny amounts. Radioactivity being the actual physical uh, substance that's emitting the radiation, right? Right. So if I have a little bit of cesium-137 or strontium-90, that's radioactivity, it gives off radiation. And the public thinks of it as, okay, um, it's like getting an x-ray. But the real risk here is getting the radioactive particles inside your body where they can irradiate a portion of your body for long periods of time with no shielding and with no distance to reduce the dose. And really very, very tiny amounts can be dangerous. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to wrap your mind around how tiny an amount of you know, uh, uh, plutonium or strontium could, could cause damage if it were to get in, inside your body, right? It's just, it, it, it's, it's a challenge to try to visualize because it's so That's small. Right. A, a millionth of an ounce of plutonium-239, if inhaled, uh, is estimated to cause uh, cancer with an essentially 100% certainty. And so the issues about Hunter's Point are not that there's this huge amount of radiation like want, walking over an x-ray machine all the time. It is that there's bits of particles that you can breathe in or ingest and get into your body where they will stay in your body, irradiating you year after year after year, increasing your risk of cancers, leukemias, and if it gets to the genetic material of uh, reproductive cells, um, your offspring in terms of birth defects. So, right. so it's uh, never it's is, never been about the the level of radiation that you would have in like a nuclear meltdown scenario, like Chernobyl, where you have acute injury, you can actually get you get burns, or you have an injury that appears within days or weeks. This is more about the danger of lingering kind of uh, low dose radiation. Um, that is dispersed throughout the soil at, at levels that can still cause cause cancer, uh, you know, 15, 20, 30 years down the line, right? That's right. Um, low dose is a bit of a misnomer, but we're not talking about the kind of radiation you would get if you were at Hiroshima at the time of the bomb, obviously. Right. That produces acute radiation syndrome where the organs shut down in a few days to a few weeks you die. We're talking about uh, very much lower amounts of radiation that increase your risk of getting a cancer um, with a latency period of a few years to a few decades. Um, and so when agencies tell you that there is no immediate risk at Hunter's Point, they're playing games. We're not talking about an immediate risk. We're not talking about radiation levels that will cause you to fall over tomorrow. We're talking about risk, uh, radiation levels that can uh, increase your chance of getting a cancer some years from now. It seems like, unfortunately, it's it's easier for agencies to dismiss the the risk because it is invisible, right? Well, um, it is if they're not going to be honest. If they're going to be honest, they're going to tell you that we try to restrict the amount of radiation levels at Superfund sites to a fraction of a millirem a year and to no more than maybe 10 millirem a year is the upper limit, and that the cleanup standards that are being used at Hunter's Point are vastly above that. Right. Um, they're somehow telling you that it's okay to get the equivalent of many, many chest X-rays a year, 
at the levels that their cleanup standards uh, would permit. I want to repeat, we don't know what the level of radiation is at the site, but it's simply inappropriate for the agencies to use cleanup standards that um, if the radiation were at those levels would be the equivalent of hundreds of chest X-rays. That's just wrong, ethically, medically. Okay. So you discovered that these cleanup goals were based on really outdated, um, obsolete science. And, and let me put it in perspective for people. It's not just it's a little old. The values that were being used for the buildings were a thousand and sometimes 10,000 times more lax than the standards you would get if you used EPA's building PRG calculator. Right. And why would they do that? What, what's the benefit? Well, the, to the answer Navy is very really simple is that um, the weaker the cleanup standard, the less cleanup you have to do and the more money you save. Okay. So it's about saving money. Yes, although I have to say it's very short-sighted because, of course, the Tetratech scandal, um, as an example, where the company that did many of the measurements for the Navy turned out to have fabricated the measurements, now they're going to have to go and spend a good deal of money to redo this. So it's short-sighted saving of money. And I have to be clear, it saves money for the Navy, but it increases costs to the people who are exposed, um, and not just financially, but most particularly, it increases the likelihood that they or their children may end up with cancers, leukemias, genetic effects, and so on. Okay. So three years ago, you and your students started looking at the Hunter's Point cleanup and investigating, looking at documents, and immediately you found a number of problems. And these problems had nothing to do with the fraud scandal involving Tetratech because Nobody knew about that yet. And now it's three years later, and we do know about it. Um, the scandal has come to the fore. And this year, 2018, has been basically an unprecedented year in terms of scrutiny of the shipyard. So just to review briefly a few of the things that have happened, we had two Tetratech supervisors admit to committing fraud. They're now in prison. We had the Navy and EPA come out and, and say that all of the radioactivity measurements uh, uh, taken by Tetratech are unreliable. They're junk. The Navy has spent more than a billion dollars in the cleanup. $270 million of that all went to this one company that's worked there since the 2000s. And now uh, all that data is thrown out the window. On top of that, the Department of Justice is now suing Tetratech, joining whistleblower lawsuits. And uh, the Navy's inspector general is investigating, too. So... If, if you step back and you think about it, it's, it's incredible. After three decades of cleanup, in many ways, the authorities in charge are back where they started. They still fundamentally don't know what hazardous substances exist at the shipyard, right? Yes, but let's be clear. It's not merely that the Tetratech measurements are unreliable. What's been discovered is that they were fabricated, falsified. Um, when they would take a soil sample and it turned out to be radioactive, they would be ordered to throw the sample away and take a sample from a clean area and report that as though that were the measurement. They would uh, cut, copy, and paste measurements from one wall in a building and report that as the measurements for the whole building or for other buildings without taking the measurements. So this is not simply a, a form of sloppiness. Um, this was a fabrication, and the fabrication was all in one direction, to declare stuff that was dirty to be clean, to save the Navy money. Okay, so the, so the, comp the, company, the company has said that they didn't do anything wrong. They basically blame problems on these 
handful of rogue employees said that they they cleaned up the site to the Navy's specifications and um, that the the only fraud that was caught was the fraud that was criminally prosecuted. But uh, but you're saying that the, these other agencies, Navy and EPA, have found much wider signs of, uh, of fraud in the data. Yes, this can't be a function simply of two or three rogue employees. EPA, in documents that had to be obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, again, for some reason, these agencies had not been very forthcoming about releasing embarrassing information. But the FOIA's found that EPA had estimated that for one of the parcels, 90% of the survey units showed evidence of falsification, and for another parcel, 97%. In other words, only 3% of the survey units uh, were found to be free of evidence of falsification. That can't be the uh, uh, effect of simply two or three rogue, rogue employees. But Jason, the much larger question is whether or not this is restricted to Tetratech. And I, because of the work um, I and my team have done over the last several years, um, we're increasingly convinced that the pr problem is not restricted to Tetratech, but that Tetratech either uh, received uh, explicit direction from the Navy or at least implicit direction to take whatever steps it could to reduce the amount of cleanup and therefore the cost to the Navy. And the very troubling matter is that what's supposed to fix this now is retesting by the Navy. The Navy's conduct and its retesting plan um, are as troubled as uh, the original Tetratech work. In other words, I do not see the public getting protected by the efforts that are supposed to be being done now to fix the problem that Tetratech was involved in. Um, I believe that the problems go far beyond Tetratech. They come back to the Navy, and frankly, they come back to EPA, the state toxics agency, the state public health department, and the uh, city's agencies, all of whom signed off year after year after year on what Tetratech was doing, and all of whom are now signing off on numerous uh, matters that are as troubling as what Tetratech did. Okay, why would the regulators sign off? That's something that I don't necessarily understand. I mean, I've, I've always kind of considered the EPA to be, to be the agency that wears the white hat, you know, the good guys, uh, in terms of, of looking out for uh, hazardous releases or pollution or that sort of thing. Why would the regulators sign off on all of this? So it is true that the EPA has more of a white hat than the other agencies, but it is still a mixed and conflicted agency. At present, for example, the regional administrator for uh, the region uh, covering Hunters Point uh, is a Trump appointee whose main claim to fame is that he says that he invented the chant Lock her up. Okay. All right. Uh, Come on, Dan. Though you, you know, you know that you know that that guy is not uh, necessarily directly involved in the day-to-day -day decisions about Superfund he, sites. So the he, buck stops with him. Oh, come on. Um, this he is, is the regional administrator. But you, but you, but you actually have relationships with some people at EPA, and you, like you understand that the career staff at EPA are not Trump appointees, and they, no, they but, probably uh, don't they me... probably don't don't like Trump, right? So the the kind of the the core of the of the people at the agency doing the day-to-day -day stuff. Uh, are, are still the same people who've been there for a long time, right? It's like Trump has not, the Trump appointees are not controlling the uh, decisions that affect uh, the Hunters Point Naval Shipyard cleanup, right? 
Well, first of all, I disagree with that. Uh, the line staff can't take any action without the approval of the political appointees in the region. But your point is correct in a much larger fashion, which is that the problems within EPA Region 9 predate um, Trump and this regional administrator. There are many people within EPA who have been trying to do the right thing on Hunter's Point. There are some people within EPA who have been much more protective of the Navy and not carrying out what they should do. It's particularly true for the Department of Toxic Substances Control and the Department of Public Health. Uh, these are state agencies that the legislature has been widely cons uh, long concerned, have too much uh, influence on them by the uh, uh, polluting entities that they're to regulate. Okay. So your larger question has to do with the fact that all of these regulating agencies are mixes. They have some diligent staff who really care about protecting the environment. And they have a series of political appointees, and I don't mean just the regional administrator and I'm just the director of DTSC, but they're deputy directors and office division heads and so on. And they do, from one administration to another, get significant signals to not come down hard on the responsible parties. Um, you're asking why it happened. Let's first just discuss what happened. DTSC, DPH, the Toxics and Health Departments for the state, and EPA signed off year after year after year on what um, uh, Tetratech was doing. They signed off year after year on the Navy using these standards that were outdated. So some of this is simply they're overworked and didn't catch it. Some of this has to do with this issue of regulatory agencies having a tendency to be at least to some degree captured by the interest to regulate. And some of it had to do that they just didn't have the political wherewithal to go head to head with the Navy and say, no, you have to stop this. But the bottom line is that the Tetratech scandal occurred for years and years and years and the Navy didn't catch or stop it, DTSC didn't catch or stop it, Department of Public Health didn't, and EPA didn't. And so they, their hands are not entirely clean in the matter. The public was not being protected by the regulators who were supposed to protect them. I think it's simply an empirical fact. We wouldn't be in this situation if they had done their job better. Right. So is that the most important thing that we learned this year about the shipyard cleanup, do you think? No, I think the much more troubling matter is that the problem goes far beyond Tetratech and that there is no uh, clear indication that we have a way of being able to move forward that will protect people. If I were to make a prediction, I would say that the project will go forward without any real effort to have found where the contamination is and to clean it up. Uh, the Department of Public Health in recent days has tried to declare that parcel A is fine even though their measurements included no measurements of soil whatsoever, their very quick and dirty gamma scan can't see alpha emitting materials like plutonium at all, or beta materials like strontium 90 at all, and can't detect most gamma radiating nuclides at the levels that would require cleanup. So uh, DPH went out and uh, essentially had a blindfold on and then said that they didn't see anything. And there again, I do believe it's partially because they know that they uh, were responsible in some measure for the problems in the first place. And you're talking about you're talking about the rescan of the home area, the developed area of the of the development of the area that had already been transferred to the city right. and where people are already living on it. 
And um, the Navy has recently published its plans for retesting Parcel G, and those plans are so deeply flawed that their ability to find the contamination uh, is very, very slim. So I think the big issue is that despite all the press attention, um, despite the scandal involving the fabrication by Tetratech, um, the likelihood is that the site will never be very much cleaned up and that people will end up living on it in, um, with the other parcels developed and be uh, put at risk. So let's... Dan, Dan, you're like, you're like the ultimate bearer of bad news. I always, I always feel so much worse after I talk to you. <laughs> well, I've been around and seen this a lot of times. So let's just remember the basic situation. This is one of the most contaminated sites in the country. It's a Superfund site, by definition, one of the most contaminated. There were uh, over 80 contaminated ships from the nuclear test zone in the Pacific brought back to be steam cleaned and sandblasted with that contamination being spread in the air throughout much of the Hunters Point shipyard. They burned 600,000 gallons of radioactively contaminated fuel oil in boilers at Hunters Point. So that stuff fell out. There was a very large amount of radioactive materials used by the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory with much of that spilling and contaminating. Despite that, the Navy simply waved a magic wand and declared that 90% of the site couldn't have been impacted and didn't need to even be tested. And that's based on their so, own records, right? They, they, their own they records, looked at their own they, records of what experiments had been performed and in what areas, and they decided that most of the site, there had been no ra- ra- radiological experiments or work performed, and therefore they didn't Without testing, without sampling, based on very well, why is uh, that a pr- sketchy Why is that records? a problem? If they had never performed a radiological experiments in one part of the site, why would you need to test that site? How would, how would radioactive contamination even get to that place? Because the sandblasting and steam cleaning of the contaminated ships was done in the open air, and the wind blew all that stuff throughout much of Hunter's Point. The burning of the radioactive fuel oil, open air, that spread it throughout much of the site. Um, there are uh, dozens of other mechanisms by which the radioactive material used in one location would readily migrate and spread. And in fact, we've seen that. Uh, they continue to find contamination in places they declared couldn't have it. So the way science works is you get data and draw conclusions from the data. What the Navy did is that they created its conclusions. 90% of the site couldn't be contaminated and then didn't take any measurements. So I am very, very worried that um, this uh, scandal, which is a very big scandal, um, is never going to be fixed. I don't see the Navy having gotten religion and saying we're going to reverse course and now do it right. And I don't so far see the regulatory agencies, with the partial exception of EPA, which in the last few months has been more diligent. But I don't see them having the backbone to stand up to the Navy and say, no, you're doing this wrong and we're not going to allow it. Yes, we all screwed up so far. We all allow this to get to this point, but we're not going to let it get any further. So I worry that press attention will diminish at some point, that the elected officials who have not played a role will continue to stay on the sidelines and that this will simply pass. Dan, you're talking to you're talking to the press attention, press attention right here. Understood. My friend, it's the only thing that it's the only thing that's protecting people. Let's be clear. (laughs) Okay, it has been. 
And to be clear, Dan, you don't actually know how contaminated the site is, right? You're not you're not saying that the site is dirty at a certain level. You're just you're saying that the people who are supposed to be checking the site haven't done their job, and so it's it's really impossible for anyone to know how clean or how dirty it is. That's right. So we don't know because ninety percent wasn't tested. We don't know because of what was tested. Ninety-seven percent was fabricated. What the real readings are. We do know that even when they had very high readings, they didn't clean it up. Um, but how dangerous it is, no one knows because no honest testing has occurred. Yeah, so who are the good guys here in, in your view? Like who, who, who are the people that San Francisco residents can look to to, uh, to sort of uh, be straight with them, honest with them, tell the truth about what's happening there and uh, uh, fix problems and get it right? Like who are, who are the white hats here, the good guys? There are very few white hats. So there are a few very honest and competent people within EPA, but they are pretty much barred from speaking to the public or the press. Um, I don't cannot identify any other players, at least from government, that have the public's back at the moment. What are some issues that we need to be looking out for in 2019 on this story? Um, the Navy now says that it will uh, release potentially right before Christmas its ca- final its calculations, looking at its cleanup standards against the EPA preliminary remediation goal calculators. It's quite clear that Navy will have been playing games with that and will have turned off key inputs to the PRG calculator to try to drive way way up the allowable levels of radioactivity. Um, they are not allowing a formal public comment period, uh, in my view, in violation of, of the Superfund law. They're trying to hide that from public scrutiny. So a very key matter will be the EPA, whether it is going to allow uh, the Navy to get away with changing the inputs in the EPA calculator so as to leave hundreds or thousands of times higher levels of radioactive contamination than would normally be allowed. Secondly, the Parcel G retesting plan has been issued in draft, uh, second draft by the Navy, and it is filled with matters in which they are basically um, going to go through the motions of retesting without any ability to come up with honest answers. Question again is, is EPA going to allow that to occur? And lastly, the Department of Public Health in the next few weeks is to issue its report about that um, uh, kind of dinky uh, Geiger counter walkover survey of parcel A, will EPA allow that to go forward? Because if you have DPH and the Navy and EPA saying that the retesting is okay and everything has now been uh, found acceptable, then that's when you have to really worry about children living on the site, adults living on the site um, in the future uh, being harmed because we failed to correct the, the horrible scandal that was created by the Tetratech matter. So Dan, one thing that we hear from agencies when we uh, ask them about your reports and conclusions is that you are speculating irresponsibly, that you actually don't know um, the levels of contamination there. And so absent any confirmation of, uh, of radioactive contamination at certain places in the, in the sites, you're, you're, you're just speculating. What would you say to that? 
I find that really quite uh, shocking. The speculation is on the part of the agencies that have zero data, by their own admission, that are uh, reliable, defensible, to base an assertion of safety on. So um, uh, I am not saying that the site has contamination X level. There are no measurements on which you can base an assurance of safety. I want science to be done. I want the Navy to go back and retest and do it in a way with detection limits and equipment that can actually see what they're looking for. I wish the Department of Public Health had, instead of going through the last several months wandering around with devices that couldn't see what they're looking for, done it right. But I've never made a claim about what the contamination levels are. Um, we ha there haven't been measurements to tell us what the, um, the figures really uh, are. Our problem is that the measurements that have been made are by the admissions of the agencies almost entirely bogus. So how can they be going out and reassuring people things are safe? You're just saying they can't say that it's safe based on the data that they have now. So in, in your view, could it be cleaned up uh, correctly? Could it be done well uh, if, if everyone was doing their job right? Yes, and the tragedy is you probably could do it, uh, have done it right for the amount of money that's already been spent. Right. Those are taxpayer dollars that were wasted. We now have to redo what TetraTech did, and we frankly need to redo much of what was done beyond TetraTech. So this is not rocket science. You find contaminated soil, and you dig it up, and you take it to a radioactive waste disposal site, and you replace it with soil that you know is genuinely clean. Um, uh, cleanup is not uh, something that is remarkably high-tech. I do have to say that we shouldn't be in this position in the first place. Uh, the Navy should not have been operating with these woefully lax environmental standards, and the regulators should not have allowed them to operate all that period of time with such poor standards. Um, the old line is really true that once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's very hard to get it back in. So cleanup involves moving it to a, a licensed disposal site, uh, but they don't want to do that. So they, the measurements got fabricated, and even when they found stuff, they decided not to clean it up but to cover it up. All right. Well, on that upbeat note, I think, I think we should wrap the conversation. That was really um, uh, useful and helpful. As always, Dan, I always learn something from talking to you and uh, hope we can continue to, uh, uh, to talk to you as we keep reporting the story. Thank you very much. That was Dan Hirsch, former chair of environmental and nuclear policy at UC Santa Cruz and president of the Committee to Bridge the Gap. I want to thank Dan for talking with me today. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing. Cynthia will be back next week, and we'll see you then. Toxic is a part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Toxic and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. <laughs>